You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Today on Right in D.C., we'll be talking with Ben Weingarten about some religious tests that may have been used in employment decisions under President Obama's administration. We'll also be talking with him about President Trump's executive order on immigration. We saw a controversial ad by 84 Lumber that aired talking about this woman. It painted a story of this woman and her daughter making this arduous journey across rough terrain, difficult circumstances in order to reach opportunity and freedom and liberty. And in the ad, the woman and her daughter come up to this very, very large wall and they start to cry because they realize that the wall is going to prevent them from going into this land of freedom and opportunity. And then they go around the corner and there are two large doors made of lumber, presumably 84 lumber, and they push on the doors and they're able to walk into the land of freedom and liberty. The problem with this ad is that it is fiction. And you contrast this ad with what happened in Europe over the last couple of years when we saw picture and video after picture and video of Middle Eastern military-aged men who were flooding into Europe. And if you look at those pictures, there are very few women, very few children, which makes you think that these men, now they're probably not all radical Islamic terrorists, but they're also probably not refugees because in that case, they left their mothers, their daughters, their aunts, their grandmas back in their countries and came here after eschewing all of their female relatives, which is a little hard to believe if they're refugees. The truth is, when you contrast that ad, which is yet another example of an American company jumping in to a controversial national debate, they are not presenting the true facts of what President Trump's administration is trying to prevent from happening in the United States. We're going to talk about all those things today on Right in D.C. We're going to give you some more information about it. We're going to equip you to be able to go out and talk about this with your friends and neighbors. Thanks for joining us on Right in D.C. today. We want to thank No One Left Behind. Their mission is to help Afghan and Iraqi combat interpreters with special immigrant visas to resettle safely in the United States. You can learn more about their important mission at noonelef.org. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Here's her guest in the hot seat. excited to have Ben Weingarten joining us this morning. He's a conservative commentator focusing on national security, economics, and politics for publications such as the Conservative Review, City Journal, and The Federalist. He's also a Publius Fellow of the Claremont Institute, and he's the founder and CEO of Change Up Media, a media consulting, production, and publication services company. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on Right in D.C. today. Yo, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. 
well, we've only had a couple weeks of President Trump and his administration, and yet we know that a lot of the things that he is doing are being attacked by the media, by the Democrat Party, by the opposition. And I wanted to draw listeners' attention back to an article that you wrote in the fall of 2016, talking about how President Obama and his administration were possibly using a religious test on some of their hires. Could you tell us a little bit about this circumstance? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the trove of WikiLeaks emails that were released, I believe, in October of last year, one of the emails that came out showed uh, in very explicit terms that early on in the Obama administration, as it was looking to fill certain seats, that a religious test of sorts, although they would never qualify it that way, the administration that is, was being levied on potential hires. The particular email in question was uh, between Preta Bansal, who was a lawyer working in private practice at the time, but who was consulting with the administration. And she would go on to serve as a general counsel and a, and a policy advisor for the OMB, uh, the Office of Management and Budget from 2009 to 2011, as well as Gail Smith, who was on the National Security Council, and John Podesta, of course, the Clinton campaign chairman and a former Obama administration advisor. And Ms. Bonzal's email speaks to the fact that she was compiling a list of, quote-unquote, Asian-American and Muslim-American candidates for top administration jobs, sub-cabinet jobs, and the like. And essentially what Ms. Bonzal says in her email very specifically is that Asian-American candidates on her list were filtered by religion. So she says, and I'll quote directly from the email, I excluded those with some Arab-American background, but who are not Muslim, e.g. George Mitchell. Many Lebanese-Americans, for example, are Christian, unquote. So here we have very explicitly, in no uncertain terms, the Obama administration filtering candidates by religion in particular and filtering out non-Muslims, regardless of their qualifications, from those seats. And later on, Ms. Bonzal speaks to the fact that some of those on her list may end up being subject to blogger criticism, quote-unquote, which is really what she's saying is that the backgrounds of some of the candidates that she's putting forth may be questionable in terms of their ties, associations, past activities, or, of course, their ideological makeup, their worldview. And so <laughs> here you see kind of a twofer of not only a potential religious test being levied here, but as well the idea that some of these candidates – may pose a potential threat or may not be able to uphold the Constitution as they're charged with when they receive these sorts of assignments. Well, as you state in your article that this information came from WikiLeaks revealed emails, have any of these emails been disavowed or claimed to be false from the sources of the emails? This particular email, to my knowledge, there's been no disavowal of it. And you'll know it that in the whole uproar over the, the emails released by WikiLeaks, almost no one from the Clinton campaign side disputed the contents of those emails. So if there has been, if there is any sort of dispute, it has not been articulated. 
And for the positions that the Obama administration was recruiting to hire, were there any reasons why these positions would need someone of a Muslim background? Were the positions for reaching out to the Muslim communities in Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan? Was there any reason that you could see why the Obama administration in particular would want to recruit Muslims and discriminate against Christians or Yazidis or anybody else from those regions of a different religious background? Well, this, the email specifically calls out candidates, and I'm quoting here, for top administration jobs, sub-cabinet jobs, and outside boards slash agencies slash policy committees. It's possible that the boards, agencies, or policy committees might specifically be dealing with Muslim outreach, as, as you alluded to. But top administration jobs and sub-cabinet jobs, to me, it seems should be based upon your qualifications for the position, and that would imply positions likely not just dealing specifically with uh, Muslim-majority nations or the Arab world or Muslim world more broadly. And, and so to that end, I think it, it, unless there was a specific list of here are all the positions and these positions specifically deal with Muslim matters, to my mind, there could be no other justi justification for this than the fact that the administration was clearly prioritizing Muslims over those who have other faiths. And indeed, I argue, essentially violating Article 6 of the Constitution, which says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States, and also says that all candidates must show fealty to the Constitution. And again, the part of her email, Ms. Banzal's email, that gets to this Constitution upholding test I think is the really critical element here, because regardless of a person's religion, the key thing is also their ideology. And if the political elements of their religious views might come into conflict with the Constitution, well, that should call into question the entire nature of their appointments and whether or not they're really qualified to serve. Right. And we are hearing an uproar right now over President Trump and his administration's executive order on trying to increase vetting of Syrian refugees and temporarily pausing some uh, immigration and travel by citizens, Muslim, Christian, Yazidi, Jewish, whatever type of religion, Zoroastrian, whatever type of religion you want to think of from these areas of seven Muslim-majority countries. Do you see any connection between this piece that you wrote about a religious test and the criticism of President Trump's executive order? Well, I see an absolute connection, which is that while the opponents of this executive order have cast it as a Muslim ban... First of all, the executive order doesn't discriminate on the basis of religion when it comes to a temporary suspension. And, and let's be very clear, we're talking about a 90-day pause in terms of immigration from countries that are terrorist or jihadist-laden countries, which may not have functioning governments and the necessary information to share with the United States to give us any confidence whatsoever that we can be sure that those individuals seeking to come into our country don't wish to do us harm. And there's a part of that executive order which has been, of course, overlooked by the media and the opponents, but I repeat myself, of the executive <laughs> order. 
And, and that is that the order calls in Section 1 for the fact that our immigration system must ensure that we do not allow folks into our country who wish to overturn our Constitution, who hold views that are inimical to the liberal Western values and principles, Judeo-Christian values and principles, although it doesn't use those terms, that underpin our entire system. You know, it calls for not allowing in, essentially, people who believe in things that Sharia supremacists do, whether it comes to female genital mutilation or the subjugation and suppression of women's, gays, religious minorities, etc. And so it does not call out any religion whatsoever, but it does say that people hold political views inimical to ours should be prevented from coming into our country. And what it says simply is that in order to ensure that we don't allow such individuals to come in, we need a pause to strengthen and make sure that the standards that we're using to vet individuals from these identified countries that are either hostile to the U.S., jihadist and or failed states, that we take a pause and we reevaluate our system. And that, to me, seems like something that's not only eminently prudent, but it's also lawful because the relevant statute, 1182F is the statute of Section 8 of the U.S. Code. You can go to it and you can see that the president clearly has the authority to stop the entry of individuals, aliens who might pose a threat to our homeland. And, and the president has broad discretion in this matter. So I think that not only in terms of the, the spirit of the law, but in the letter of the law, it's very clear that this executive order is prudent and lawful, and it specifically is not discriminating on the basis of religion. Where opponents have challenged the executive order, in part, is on the idea that those who are religious minorities should be given preference when it comes to refugee resettlement in the U.S. And one of the primary standards when it comes to our refugee laws stems from the fact that religious-based persecution is one of the core principles when it comes to why we should accept refugees. And of course, we saw in the Obama administration that the vast majority of refugees from countries such as Syria and other Muslim-majority nations were Muslims rather than those groups who were specifically discriminated against on the basis of religion, namely Christians and others. And so, in essence, what Donald Trump, President Trump, has said is that Christians should be given a more favorable view when it comes to refugee resettlement. And on the basis of the precedent that religious-based, minority-based persecution is a core part of why we do refugee resettlement, that those two things are consistent. That is, we need to make up for the fact that the Obama administration, it seems, prioritized Muslims over Christians, when in reality it's religious minorities, namely Christians, who have been discriminated against uh, during this metastasizing global jihad, which is most prevalent in the Middle East. Right. And even President Obama's administration with John Kerry as Secretary of State, I, I believe last spring, identified that there is a genocide going on against Christians and also Yazidis in this very war-torn, horrifying area of our world. So it's not, this is not something new that has just been identified, that, that Christians and Yazidis and, and other religious minorities are being persecuted by ISIS and other insurgent jihadi radical Islamic terrorist groups. But they're also, this is something that was, was determined 
under President Obama's administration, and now we're seeing a policy put in place by President Trump and his administration to actually do something to correct this neglect of the last few years, would you say? Absolutely. And let's not forget that this discrimination in the Middle East and this global jihad, which specifically targets uh, non-believers, but also those Muslims who they don't view as being pious enough, occurred on the Obama administration's watch. I mean, let's not forget that the whole reason we have Syria in the situation that it's in is in large part due to the fact that there was a red line that the Obama administration put forth that they never made good on. They talk about a, a genocide against Christians in the Middle East. They identify it, but they take no responsibility whatsoever for empowering, aiding, abetting, and enabling, I think the evidence clearly supports it, the very forces that have led to this genocide in the Middle East. So, of course, part of what the, the reason the Trump administration was elected was to reverse the very policies that led us to these disasters in the Middle East and created this outflow of people from the Middle East in the first place. And kudos to the Trump administration for following through on what they said they were going to do. And it again reflects the fact that the, the Obama administration was all talk and no action. And when they took action, the action served to the detriment of the very people they identified as being persecuted. Also, there's been research done that shows that for the cost of bringing one refugee from the Middle East over to the United States and resettling that one refugee, we could support for the same amount of dollars 12 refugees if they followed the the conventional wisdom, the charter and documents of the United Nations that really say that refugees should be kept to as close of their country of origin as possible, as is safe. And when you think about that and the, uh, I guess, the overwhelming chorus of the opposition saying that the Trump administration is being inhumane not to settle these Muslim refugees in the United States, can you speculate at all, or are you willing to speculate, what is behind that if the true humanitarian response would be instead of letting 11 people be stuck in the Middle East for the same amount that one lucky refugee gets the ability to come here to America. What do you think the speculation is of why the opposition to Donald Trump and his administration's policy could be behind that? Well, one thing that, that we could say is that, that that analysis that you're pointing to is something that the opponents may ignore. The opponents of this executive order and indeed the political opponents of the Trump administration have likely ignored uh, the analysis, which is eminently reasonable. I mean, basically what we're saying here is that on cultural grounds, because you would be resettling or creating safe zones for such refugees in the part of the world that they already live with people who are similar culturally and have similar views to them, that's a humane thing to do. And then from a logistic perspective and an economic perspective and in terms of how are U.S. tax dollars best put forth towards our national interest, it all points to the fact that actually it should be other regimes in the region, uh, in particular the, the wealthier Gulf states, should basically b hold the load, uh, do their fair share 
to help handle a situation which is a Middle Eastern situation, not an American or Western situation to be dealt with in the first place. Now, in terms of why uh, those others might say, well, we should be resettling regardless of the fact that it might be better for the refugees themselves and it might be the more fair, humane, and economically intelligent thing to do, there's a, there's an idea of a multiculturalist ideology that has pervaded the West. And you see it in Europe. And of course, you see it among the left in America, which essentially assumes that everyone has equal beliefs. We're all the same. Our cultures are exactly the same. And that resettling a Syrian refugee is exactly the same as resettling someone from Western Europe in the U.S. And I think that's unfounded uh, in theory and in practice. But essentially, what folks are saying is that their ideology should trump all else, that we should have, in effect, open borders, open ourselves up, regardless of the views of those who we might be bringing in, and also that we're prioritizing the interests of the refugees over our own citizens. And there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And this, again, speaks to, I think, one of the reasons that President Trump won in the first place is that the idea of America first, putting the interests of American citizens first, rather than those of other parts of the world, to me seems like a pretty sensible thing to do. It also seems consistent with what our political leaders are charged with, namely protecting the, the rights of our citizens first. And so I think, again, this speaks to a fact that there are some who essentially, in effect, wish to value the uh, hopes, dreams, and aspirations of others over American citizens, and there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And we should make the point, we as conservatives, that the compassionate thing to do is to think about our citizens and the burdens that they have to bear in connection with these programs first. We are also hearing a lot from the opposition saying that this executive order would not have prevented 9-11. It would not have prevented the San Bernardino massacre. It would not have prevented the Pulse nightclub massacre. It would not have prevented the Boston Marathon bombing. What is a conservative who cares about this issue? How should they respond to that criticism by the opposition? Well, besides the fact that there's a little bit of a, a logical inconsistency here when it comes to the fact that historical precedent doesn't is not necessarily a predictor of what's going to happen in the future, a, a few things. One is there are plenty of statistics out there to show that there have been hundreds of terrorist investigations of individuals who are not American-born, not U.S. citizens initially, who have been involved in terrorist investigations. So, so first of all, the idea the idea that we would never stop any of these things, and basically we can allow everyone in from all parts of the world is a canard. That, that's number one. Number two is the fact that ISIS in particular, or the Islamic State in particular, has said they wish to infiltrate by way of refugees and by way of immigration. So when your enemy tells you how they're going to try to hurt you, and then when we have our leaders in law enforcement and national security, and these were Obama appointees, tell us on the record and testimony in front of the relevant congressional bodies that we don't necessarily have good enough, strong enough vetting standards, superior enough information to be able to adequately judge who should and who should not be allowed into the country. It's very clear that we have an issue there. It's also very clear if you look at the 1991 Muslim Brotherhood Explanatory Memorandum 
and basically all of the jihadist literature that we have, that they will seek to exploit our system every which way they can. And that includes coming into our borders, both legally and illegally. And so immigration is one piece of a much broader counter-jihadist plan that we need to implement. And I think the, the Trump administration is seeking to implement with this immigration executive order being merely one part of a holistic effort to try to keep the country safe. And, and so I would just say that the, it's an unfounded notion that because in the past certain situations may not have been prevented by this particular executive order, that thus the executive order is without merit. And again, I would put it to the opponents of this. If your enemy says they wish to infiltrate via refugee program and an immigration program, does, is it not incumbent upon you to make sure that you put the most rigorous vetting standards and procedures possible in place to prevent against that threat? And by the way, we know there are reports that in 2015 there were Syrians who were led into this country who were not properly and adequately vetted, that certain systems were not cross-checked to ensure they did not pose security threats, and that now law enforcement authorities are going back and reviewing the profiles of hundreds of refugees. So all of this points to the fact that we have a very determined enemy and we need to take all adequate measures we can to prevent against them. One of the things that you have to do is stop them from coming into the country in the first place. And then the next thing you have to do is deal with those who are already here or who might jihadize on American soil in the first place. Ben, you're very knowledgeable about this. Where can listeners go to read more of your writing and learn more about your experience in all of these issues? Sure. Well, I write at Conservative Review and several other sites. All of my work is uh, chronicled at benweingarden.com, and I'm also a very avid tweeter. I tweet at bhweingarden, and you can find me on Facebook as well. Do you have anything else you want to add? The only thing I'd add is that, as I mentioned, we need to have a holistic plan to prevent against jihadism in America, uh, as well as all of the other threats that we face. And I think that the Trump administration, if the early days are any indication, understands the size, scope, and nature of the threat and looks to take the steps necessary to make a sea change in a policy that has hampered us really for the 15 years since 9-11. Ben, thank you very much for joining, with, joining us, and we hope to have you back again soon. Gail, it's my pleasure, and thanks so much for having me. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and hear me every week on iTunes. This is Gail Trotter, right in D.C. Music provided by local band Trio Caliente. Visit their website, triocaliente.com, or sample their music on iTunes.